You are listening to the Wine Cellar Podcast, where we simplify the world of wine. Each show, we discuss topics ranging from the grape to the glass. Here are your hosts, Brandon Bourgeois and Tyler Schwed. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another edition of the Wine Cellar Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Schwed. In this episode of the podcast, we had the distinct pleasure of interviewing world-famous wine writer Drew Lambert. Drew is most well-known for his work for winewankers.com. In our interview, Drew has a ton of great stories about his start into the world of wine, a lot of his traveling stories, and is just an overall really entertaining and funny guy. So we can't wait for you guys to listen to the interview. So without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Drew Lambert. Drew, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Uh, so why don't we get started with your background and how you got into the world of wine? Definitely. Well, it's, it's quite interesting because no one ever actually ever sets out to become a wine writer, I don't think. And I've actually been a wine writer for almost 20 years now. I was a, a wine waiter in a restaurant in Sydney back in the mid-90s. And back in those days, we didn't even call them sommeliers as much. In fact, I think there was probably only around about five sommeliers in all of Sydney. And I just happened to lock myself into one of those positions. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. Um, but in the same light, I didn't know whether I could actually be a, a waiter for the rest of my life just because my legs would never be able to um, handle that. Um, and I just thought to myself, well, I, I wanted to do something else in the wine industry maybe. So I actually went to a careers vocational counsellor and I said, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And she said, look, there's this. Uh, and I said, look, I love wine. I love food. But... You know, I hate standing up. Um, so she said, there's this great um, course you can do at university called Wine Marketing. And that was at Adelaide University in um, South Australia. And for the next four years, I actually um, started studying wine marketing. And um, I was halfway through that course that uh, somebody said, oh, you need to get more respected in the wine industry if you want to get a job one day. I'm like, well, what else can I do? And I thought to myself, who has more respect in the wine industry than a wine writer and so my friend at the time she was actually doing a journalist course and one of the sections was how to get your own local column in a local newspaper so I just basically followed that to the letter um, about reaching out to someone saying hey I'd like to be your wine writer and like well, my god how am I gonna do this I'm you know I barely know how to write an essay for university and um, but I'll give my a good, good shot so I basically did my first four columns for free and then I started charging after that and it was kind of like in the mid-90s, everything was lifestyle and everyone, it was a new buzzword, lifestyle, this lifestyle, that. Mm-hmm. And so my editor said, yeah, we'd love to have a wine column. That's kind of cool and out there. And it was just like a local Sydney newspaper. And literally by that stage, there was only three wine writers in all of Sydney. And they were like major wine writers. They were the, the, the wine writers of the Sydney Morning Herald, the Daily Telegraph and the Australian. So these guys were fairly, fairly highly respected. And then all of, a sudden, all of a sudden comes this idiot Drew Lambert who was like <laughs> in his mid-20s. Everyone else was really ancient as I, I, I like to think. And I thought, wow, for a, for a person who had never had sat at, a, at one of these tables to all of a sudden being sitting with the most influential wine writers in Australia, it's like, how the hell did I get myself on <laughs> this table? And it was just really crazy. Like, the you know, all of a sudden – you get to taste all these amazing wines, you get invited to all these amazing restaurants and you get fed all this information which was so 
cool for a person who was actually studying wine at university. So for me, I, I, I quickly drank the Kool-Aid and learned that, you know, this is a pretty cool um, profession to be in. And so 20 years later, I'm still in it. Um, but it's so quite, it's quite interesting because I always thought to myself I was never as good as all the other wine writers in Australia because they, like, they're like the, how would I say, they know everything in the wine industry. I always thought to myself as I'm like the, the people's wine writer, the person who, you know, distills all the information about what wine is really about and puts it into like little bite-sized chunks of infotainment. And it's always been that, like, I understand, like, Wine writers can be the most freaking boring people in the world, and you just have to read their wine descriptions. And I thought, I never want to be that person. I want to be a person who reaches out to the ninety-five percent of people who don't or would never read a wine column. So I, I always use a, a lot of humour. I swear a lot, and I, um, you know, don't take myself seriously at all. So that's always been the kind of wine writer I've been. And it's just been in the last four years that um, my friend Conrad and I, that we established this wine social media account called The Wine Wankers. And it's really hit a chord with a lot of people around the world because we are, you know, we're wine without the wankery. So we all know what a wine wanker is. A wine wanker is one of those people who just knows it all and thinks they all the be all and end all. Um, And in Australia, we're very much about being ironic. So you'll call yourself a wine wanker, but you're actually the opposite of what a wine wanker is, which is what we've always tried to be. Mm -hmm. So we're all about having fun, um, using a lot of humor, and not taking ourselves or the wine industry very seriously at all. In fact, we love our wine. We just don't, you know, take the... I don't know, whatever out of it. So there you are. That's the wine wankers. I love that. That's a great story. Um, do you think that um, because you started out so young that it really uh, actually helped you with resonating with a lot of people who aren't generally that into wine right away? Oh, absolutely. But I also think that it's just about how you – I think Australians can be very self-deprecating. Um because we will cut you down so fast if you ever get on your high horse and think that you are that and more. So I've never been that. And I've always, you know, because I was also writing for a street for street press in Sydney, you can't be that wine tosser and sprout all this bullshit. Because, you know, I was always writing for a young audience anyway. So, in fact, one of my first columns, because it was also in the era of Sex in the City, I used to call my column Drinking in the City. And it wasn't about wine recommendations or boring wine reviews of boring fucking wine companies. It was all about the culture of drinking and how, you know, we are all mixed into whatever over a glass of wine or a beer or whatever you're drinking. Um, and that's what I found more entertaining was I felt like I was like the uh, the Carrie Bradshaw of the wine industry in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> that's How did you make that journey to going from, you know, being a writer to, to doing what you do now with, with a big social media following? How did you make that uh, that transition to that well, world? It was quite interesting because it wasn't actually me that started the wine wing because it was Conrad and one of my other friends, Neil. And at that point in time, I was, I was writing for Australia's number one supermarket magazine, which was called Coles. I don't know what you call the equivalent in, in Canada, but basically it was, once again, it was, we had a circulation of about 1.5 million copies. So we had a really big circulation. And, um, also when I'm not being a, a wine writer, I actually worked 
PR. I don't do PR for wine or food, but it's a completely unrelated industry. And and the guys, they, the, Conrad and Neil, said to me, "Oh, Drew, we started up a wine blog." And I said, "Oh, that's really nice. That that's you know." I was actually quite condescending because in my line of PR, you get so many bloggers come up to you and say, <laughs> "Oh, we're going to do this, that, or the other," and they've got this great. And they, you you know. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people making grand claims about how big or how important they are. And, and then they said, oh, you know, we've gotten this big. And I said, that's bullshit. You can't amass that many followers so quickly. Yeah. So I, 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 I looked into it. And I said, at that point, they'd, they'd accumulated something like 75,000 followers wow. in a matter of like one year. I'm like, Jesus Christ. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm a wine writer and I've got like one and a half thousand followers on Twitter and most of those are people are my friends. So um, I, I just got into, I looked into it and A, it all checked out. They were all legitimate followers. They hadn't bought their followers or anything like that. And then I looked into it and was like, what are you, I said, guys, what are you doing that's different? Why are people resonating with you rather than traditional wine writers who might be on social media? And it really came down and said, look, what we are is we don't take ourselves seriously at all. You know, we throw a lot of, you know, hey, if it's a, if there's a cat meme drinking wine, we'll throw it up there. Or if it's a, a meme talking about, oh, you've had a shit day, have a glass of wine and, you know, blah, blah, they'll do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think people really resonated with the name Wine Wankers. Um, <laughs> in the end, it's a name that really sticks out and people are like, God, what, what are these jokers all about? And so they, they look into it and say, hang on, this is actually something that, you know, I really, I really, uh, you know, these guys seem more like me than the other um, wine writers that are out there. And so as a result of that, you know, we've crossed a lot of um, cultural barriers, I guess, and also geographical barriers. Like we are Australian wine writers, but, you know, 45% of our followers are now in North America. You know, it's like, you know, 10% are in the UK, uh, 15% in the UK, you know, 10% in Europe, you know, New Zealand and Australia, they're definitely big for us. But, you know, we've actually become quite a global thing. And I think we've really resonated with people who, you know, also love wine, but they don't love the stuffiness of wine. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like where we are. Was it tough for you? To, like, is there a natural tendency to kind of gravitate towards that as you get more familiar with wine? Like as, as yes. you, is that like, you know, this is the exact thing. Cause you know, you've got to, you've got to understand that I've come from a, a background of traditional wine writing ish kind of. Right. And the thing with Neil and Conrad like they are not wine writers at all when they first established it. They are just two guys that love wine. Um, you know, Neil spent way too much money on wine and still does. And Conrad was, you know, he just always loves a, a drink. But these guys were going at it completely different. They were, uh, they loved wine. They didn't know much about wine and how it was made. And for them, it was the journey of, um, for them, it was the journey of discovery. Um, and everyone, came along for the ride and I guess for me they kept on saying hey Drew you're, you're, you're describing that wine a little bit too much you know if you by, by, by talking about the, the palate weight and the acidity of the wine you, you, you're, you're switching off so I've really got to um, hold back from saying those crazy wine descriptors because really they are the biggest wank in the wine community if you ask me big <laughs> floral descriptive uh descriptive uh, you know back labels I think they're just so off-putting it, it actually makes a person hate a wine more than actually do it you know mm-hmm. in the end wine is delicious it's something you drink with uh, your mates 
you get pissed sometimes on wine. Like, you know, like, I, I, you know, it's all of those things. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I always laugh at wineries who try and associate themselves with the opera or the fine arts of, you know, ballet and orchestras. Like, fucking hell, if you've met half the wine writers, what wine makers I have, none of them are like that. They're more likely to be wearing their Blundstone boots and sitting in the back of the winery telling really bad jokes that are extremely <laughs> blue. And that's what the wine industry is for, is for me. Yeah, they produce amazing wines, but, you know, they're, they're, they're basically farmers right. who love a good drink. And, you know, they're the, they're the kind of people that I like to hang out with. And that's, you know, that's why I think that's, you know, as again, I said, that, that we've really resonated with quite a lot of people around the world. Yeah. Well, it's cool because a lot of the wineries that we go to, the ones that are the most vibrant are always the ones that are, I don't know if casual is the right word, but the ones that are the most laid back and there's no, there's no sort of stigma to it. There's no sort of, you know, snobbiness or, or wankerish. I don't know if that's the proper wankerish. We used to the word because I don't use <laughs> that word. But it's cool. Like, you know, the best ones that we always go to are the ones that are like super laid back and very casual. Lots of young people around working. And it's it's a cool it's a cool environment to be part of. Excellent, that's what we like to hear. Yeah, and it's the same thing in Australia. You know, I think I think Canadians in Australia we're we're actually cut from the same cloth yeah. in many ways. That you know we, we we don't suffer fools. We call a spade a spade, and in the end, we just like to sit down and have a drink. Yeah. And I think that's extremely appealing to a lot of people. Now, I know you've you've probably done a lot of traveling and and stuff in your profession. You know, uh, I guess a rough life to be part of the wine industry, going from restaurant yes. to restaurant. But uh, I don't know. I wonder if you could just tell me how, how that's been, and uh, you know, maybe uh, it's actually, yeah. yeah. Look, look, traveling is. I do. This is the crazy thing. Like you, you know, people say, "Oh, you, 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 you do actually have the best job in the world because you get to drink for a living, and that's <laughs> great." And you know, like every single every single holiday that I ever go on, I always say, "How can I?" like visit a, a wine region with this holiday so that the, the trip can be a bit of a tax write-off. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, that, you know, now especially because at the moment I'm not living in Australia, I'm actually living in Sweden. And being on the doorstep of Europe's wine regions, it's just like it's, so, it's basically everywhere. It's like a two-hour flight now right. from where I live. And like all these wine regions I've only ever dreamt of going to. Like Because when you live in Australia, everything's a 24-hour plane ride to wherever so you may be you'll do you do one european trip and you'll try and fit in you know five or six wine regions in one trip and you just become so exhausted and you know if you've traveled through france you're just so sick and tired of eating bloody cheese and <laughs> ham for four weeks to the point that you actually get rolled back on the plane before you go back to australia and the first thing you want to do is hit the gym in fact you actually start doing um you actually start doing air squats on the plane just so you can start working off of that fat you've just become. But now, <laughs> now you actually um, can just do little weekend trips away, you know, like go for two, um, three or four days. Um, and, you know, some of the places I've been recently has just like uh, uh, been dreams come true. You know, the, I, I'm going to – I've actually just come from back from Italy last month where I was uh, tasting amazing wines in the Prosecco um, area and also from Tremon, which is actually the birthplace of um, Gewurz Tremon, I've been told. Um, <laughs> and following that, I, I, I even tasted wines in Ukraine, which was really quite interesting. Um, 
And what else have I been to this year? I, I, I was in Sonoma um, the month before that where I went over there for the Sonoma Barrel County auction. And these are all places that, you know, I'm quite lucky now because a, a, a lot of the wine regions, are, uh, they fly us to various places now. Whereas in Australia, you're always in the too hard basket because you're so far away and you're, you're, you're too expensive for a lot of wine regions to fly to. Mm. But now being in Sweden, because you're just like, two or four hours away from a lot of places, it's just easy for them to say, hey, Drew, come and taste these wines. And once you've tasted the wine, you see the, the wines in their natural habitat where they've been made and you just get a really good feeling for, 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 for the wine and how they connect with the local foods and the local environment. So it's pretty good. Look, I actually do say I'm extremely spoiled. And, you know, what I what I always feel like I'm doing my job is to, when I go to these regions, it's, it's not just to say, hey, go and test try, try out these um, wines in your local bottle shop, but sometimes it's just like buy a plane ticket and get yourself to a wine region because for me it's like one of the most relaxing, enjoyable ways to have a little bit of a holiday just to travel to some of the world's most beautiful, picturesque wineries. It's like two years ago I went to um, the, went for a journey down uh, through Germany in the Rhine, down the River Rhine, and it was possibly the most spectacular spectacular place I've ever visited. Like, it is exactly as beautiful as you would picture it in all those photos. And the worst part about that trip was that I was there by myself. And what you really wanted to do was, like, stop tasting wine and actually sitting down with a picnic and a couple of friends and just getting absolutely sloshed and having a look at that amazing view because that, that would have been a better way to better way to um, enjoy the trip rather than, you know, having to speak in the boring winemakers who talked about mid-weight palate weights and all those other fancy <laughs> words that I don't know what the network means. You know how to. And do you find like when you travel that you, like, you, you, you do you just go to the the nice restaurants? You try and just get you know very little bits and go to the smaller mom and pop uh, shops oh, or you know absolutely. Well, usually when you go to um, when, when you you're, when you're being flown uh, to a place by a region, they, they they definitely try and lay it on for you and they they go take you to really really fancy restaurants. The, the places that I would never be able to afford myself. But for me, what I really like—I I don't know what it, if it's if it's the same for you—but but for me, what I love is getting off the beaten track and actually eating like a local. And so sometimes you you actually just lose yourself in a direction away from where the tourists are, and you know you just point at things on the menu and you think, well, I don't know what I'm ordering, but hopefully it'll taste good. And you know, or sometimes you just strike up a conversation with the restaurant owner and say, you know, you just give me whatever you want to give me. Yeah. And so that's actually a really cool way of doing it. But yeah, it's, it, it, it's so important to, you know, I will eat anywhere and everything. You know, I was in Thailand just a few months ago and one of my favorite things is actually to eat on the street. So literally in the gutters where all the locals eat and they're like got these little shopping, these little carts where they're doing these amazing soups and they cost like $1.50 for lunch. But it's so filling and so delicious and so authentic. And that for me is what I get excited about um, traveling it's just like eating like the locals do and if you can find that that that's always brilliant i mean do you find like maybe not in taiwan but if you're traveling through germany like you were saying you were traveling on the rhine do you keep uh, do you keep your identity up in nice and secret or i guess do you prefer that you're kind of you know going into a place place discreetly so you're not getting any special treatment or how does that kind of play out so i'm just kind of oh, curious no. about we want the special treatment. <laughs> <laughs> Be honest. When's the last time you paid for a drink? Oh, living in Sweden, everything's 
costs a fortune here. <laughs> yeah. You don't pay for everything. It's ridiculous. No, um, no, but like, like, who doesn't want the like? If you can get it, you you do want to taste the you do want to taste the the special wines that yeah. uh, that that you know maybe aren't always opened, or you want to go out the back and you want to taste wines from barrels, or you know, yeah. like it's, it, that's part of the thing. You know, like it's. Right. I'm here to educate my palate as much as anyone would love to be to educate their palate. So yeah, yeah you do you do phone ahead and say, hey, I'm I'm coming and I want to try all these wines and you know because that's when you really discover a region and you know tell people about the secrets of a region and what's coming up and you know what have been some of the best vintages to look out for because obviously not everyone's going to be able to go there but you know maybe they can find it on the shop so uh, on the in the shop so yeah it's it's. Um, it's, it, I don't do it. I don't call ahead because it's a, a vanity thing. But I, I call ahead because you want to make sure that you know you get an opportunity to speak to the person who can um, who can educate your palate the most, right. um, who can show you what's exciting, and can you know take you to a, a, a local hole in the wall that maybe nobody knows about and have their delicious wines with some really amazing food. So yeah, yeah it's, a, it, it, it's, it's kind of fun, but you know, that's the type of thing that I think anyone can organize as well. So you just have to show a level of interest that is going to prove to the seller door that, you know, you, you are a, you are a, a potential customer who's going to come back more and more. And in the end, I think it's a universal thing for a lot of wineries is that they have made this amazing product. And they want you to fall in love with their product as much as they will. So, so long as you go there at a quiet time of the day and you spark up a great uh, relationship or a friendship with the winemaker or the cellar door staff and say, oh, what have you got coming up for next year? Or, you know, what, what's the stuff in barrel tasting like? And I think, oh, you know what? It's, it's not too busy. Why don't we go out the back and have a taste of it, a taste of it ourselves? And, and that's really, that's, that, 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 that's, Quite easy to arrange if you if you um, start up a good friendship with a, a good good relationship with a winery. Right. Yeah, I think we found the similar thing too when we were traveling to a few different wineries. Was that uh, the community itself? Well, when we were starting to get into it, we found we were afraid actually that uh, that wineries would be relatively uh, unwelcoming or not unwelcoming, I guess, but. Uh, um, not as accessible as the industry actually ended up being because as beginners, I feel like people get more excited about that and we're like, Oh, like this is a mind that we can mold. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's so true. And you know what? And, and this is, unfortunately, I think this is the worst, worst part about the wine industry is that a lot of people feel people are too scared to ask questions because they were worried that they're going to be portrayed as a fool because they don't know that you know like we all start out with zero knowledge and the only way you get improve that knowledge is to ask lots of questions and it's actually quite interesting because i'm living in sweden these days um and i go to a lot of tasting and um and a lot of the wine writers who who are here or the the sommeliers who when i go to these master classes they don't ask any questions and I don't know whether it's the, the Swedish mentality that um, they don't like to um, uh, show that they, they don't know the answer to that question or they're just a very quiet culture of people that they, 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 they don't want to make a scene. But, you know, I'm an allowed Australian and I don't have any qualms about asking stupid questions because I believe that, you know, I will be asking questions about wine until the day I die because it's one of those things that you will never stop learning about and 
And and the big secret for anyone who's starting out wine, I believe, is no question is a stupid question. It's just an opportunity for you to learn more. And it's also, you know, winemakers and sell it all stuff, they love talking about their wines, Mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, that's why I've always made it my goal to educate people from the ground up because when you assume that people have already a a certain amount of knowledge, I think that's when you lose people. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why I, in all the stuff that I write about, you know, I always find myself explaining what, you know, what acidity is or what uh, a pellet weight feels like. What are all those big buzzwords that, you know, people do like to learn those words, but, but you also have to explain them when you do use them. So with your uh, with your approach to your blog, um, you were saying how you guys appeal to the masses and uh, appeal to the beginners and appeal to the people who really want to take the 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 wankery out of wine. But do you guys uh, do you guys feel like you can also uh, appeal to um, the people who do take wine relatively seriously? Do you have a plan for potentially reaching that audience? Is that something you're interested in at all? Um. I think we are appealing to those people already anyway because the fact is just because you are a person that really loves wine and really knows wine doesn't mean that you can, you're a completely boring person who doesn't still like to be entertained because I don't know about you but sometimes reading those serious wine magazines, are it's like eating a really dry piece of toast mm-hmm. uh, you still want a lot of flavor on that toast so uh, you know like, while uh, we are definitely not a, a blog or social media channels for beginners because we talk about everything and anything from current uh, hot topics that are being debated in the wine industry we'll just put our spin on it um, and so we definitely appeal I think we've got the right mix of like humor um, current news events that are happening around the world, you know, high-end wines that we love, you know, budget wines that we love, um, and any, everything in between. You know, it's the only thing you don't see in our, um, our writings necessarily is, you know, like those really boring wine descriptions that waffle on and waffle on or um, winery profiles about, you know, how wines are made to the nth degree. I guess, I, you know, there are, other people are doing that anyway, um, and that for me is not exciting to read. So for me personally, read so I probably will never read about. Now, for example, what I find more exciting to read about is how you know you can now chill a glass of wine in less than three minutes with our new tea bag method that we launched the other day. And this is something that it just bragged on me. I don't know if you, if, you, if everyone goes to you know either the wine wankers on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or anything like that, you'll see this new method. Um, and for me, like being able to chill a glass of wine uh, really quickly is the equivalent of finding or building the better mousetrap. It's something that everyone wants to do. And like my partner, when I said what I was doing, you know, they said, really? Do people, are people that desperate for a glass of wine? They can't wait an hour while it <laughs> chills down in the fridge. And I was like, yeah, like all my friends. So um, he couldn't understand that. So but, but the whole idea here was, you know, like literally there are so many ways that people uh, have been trying to, you know, previously I always thought the best way to chill a bottle of wine quickly is just to throw it in the, the freezer for, you know, 15 minutes or so. 
But I always um, have a gin and tonic while I'm waiting for that wine to chill down. And often I get sidetracked by that gin and tonic and I forget the bottle of wine is in the freezer. So I don't need to find out 24 hours that that really expensive bottle is now a really expensive ice block. So um, that was never a good, a good rule for me. So there's various other ways. But the way that we've now invented is that you get a little small plastic bag you fill it up full of a, of a half cup of ice and you actually throw that bag inside your wine glass yeah. and then you top the wine glass right up to the, the very brim of the room temperature wine. You leave it for three minutes. Of course, the, the, um, the ice will melt as it um, chills, uh, up the, chills down the wine. Right. But what it does, that water doesn't dilute the, um, the wine down. So after three minutes and you're dangling, jiggling it away like a normal tea bag, you remove the ice and you've got a cool glass of wine. And literally, I don't think there is a quicker way of chilling wine out there that is as fuss free. And everyone, there were also people who were saying, oh, yeah, but Drew, doesn't it? Um, doesn't the plastic bag flavor the wine? No, it doesn't because it's only in contact with the wine for three minutes. And you're actually doing it at a very low temperature as well. Okay. So... Yeah, that's pretty good. And but the other thing is, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in recycling and reusing, and I because I hate single use plastics. So you've got to wash your plastic bag out after you've chilled the wine, so you can reuse it again for another day. So how the heck did you start? Because uh, I guess not only are you a wine writer, but I guess you kind of fit into the innovator category now. How the heck did you decide to do that? <laughs> um, because I, I I get Google News alerts for the subject of wine every single day and I've done it for the last three years. So I feel like I'm like my brain is about to explode with every single <laughs> wine column that is written out there. And one thing that always comes up is the quickest way to chill a glass of wine or chill wine. And I was looking at all these things and there's this method where you wrap your wine bottle with a, a wet towel. There's the other one where you have to put your wine bottle in a, a bath of ice cubes and water and ice. And I was like, these are so fucking difficult. And time consuming, so, like there's got to be a better way. And just like, I looked at it, and you know, because previously I've I've actually had no issues on a really hot summer's day in Australia when it is sometimes 40 degrees of you know throwing a couple of ice cubes because that is literally the quickest way to chill down a glass of wine is to put ice cubes in your wine. Right. But also, it's the quickest way to ruin a wine because it dilutes the flavors. So then I thought, well, and I just thought to myself, well. If I put it in an ice bag, a, a, bag, a little a plastic bag, it's not going to dilute it. So then I thought, oh my god, this could be, I could be onto this something. So then I started researching the internet. Has anyone invented this before, or has anyone ever done this before? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Wine Folly came similar. What Wine Folly did once was they actually had their Ziploc bag method, which is pretty brilliant. But it's once again, it's a little bit too too time consuming because you've got to do lots of props and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But basically, you get a Ziploc bag. And you actually put the wine inside the bag, you um, zip it off. Then you have to put the wine bag into an icy bath of water and ice and salt. God, see, already all the props. Then you have to wait (laughs) three minutes. And then you have to take the bag out. And then you have to decant the contents of the bag into the wine glass. Hey, you've got a a quick um, glass of wine that uh, that, that you can chill down there. But I just thought to myself... Our step is like one or two steps less for the same result. So that's the, the teabag method, trademark, wine, wank, wine wankers. <laughs> uh, and um, you can look at it and you can actually see the video on our um, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus and LinkedIn and everything else. Oh, it's very exhausting. So was this the first time you came up with the, with the product? Was, it, uh, was, that a, was there a learning curve uh, there? 
I wouldn't call it a product. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have had a lot of people questioning the fact that you know, you know, your name is your name is uh, the wine wankers, and you're now talking about tea bagging. <laughs> There's been a lot of inappropriate but I just look at people like I have no idea what you're talking about, and then move on. Yeah. Like, we actually still get quite a lot of emails, from, and funnily enough, from people from the United States saying, "Do you guys know that?" The white wankers is a, a form of masturbation. I don't know <laughs> yes, we know. It's the same reason why Google. Oh, sorry, it's the same reason why Facebook won't allow us to claim our vanity name because they think that we're, we're our name is uh, profanity. <laughs> really? Wow. I know you can't go facebook.com forward slash the wine wankers because they they won't allow that. So yes, <laughs> that's why you just have to put the search terms the wine wankers in Facebook. And then you will find us. Okay. Well, so what name do you have to use then? Oh no, we we just it's just a series of letters and numbers after. Oh, I see. If you just if you just search the wine wankers in the Facebook search area, you'll quickly find us. Okay, I got you. Tell me what it's like in Canada because I think don't you also have a monopoly as well that sells wine? Yeah, so, so you can only buy wine from one place. Yeah, so in in Ontario we have something called the LCBO, which is the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Um, it's uh, it's it's both a good and bad thing because um, the quality of alcohol here is uh, for the most part relatively high because. Um, there is such a rigorous process to get into it. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it does really make, uh, alcohol quite a bit more expensive, um, because they're the only really distributor of, um, hard liquor where they're not the only distributor of wine I know, or beer really, but there's only really two other places that will sell it. Um, but yeah, it's a system that's been around since, uh, prohibition, isn't it? Yeah. Since prohibition. Um, and it was actually used to control people at the time. You'll have to, I'll have to correct myself if I'm wrong because I'm going back to like my university days where I studied, Uh (laughs) I studied, uh, the LCBO. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they used to use it as a means to control how much people were drinking and to audit that and then that system never really went away so the government um in ontario just taxes uh alcohol quite a bit and takes a pretty big margin of profit from uh, distributors of alcohol and yeah it's still around today but there's been quite a bit of uh movement here to disband it i know there has been for for beer anyways because now for the first time ever you can buy beer from a grocery store here which was pretty much unheard of but you must kind of is it is it regular strength beer or is it yes yeah it's 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 not american beer but you must must see that a lot like it seems like in north america we still kind of have this very conservative attitude towards drinking and stuff like that right i mean i know in europe you guys can basically walk around with a beer or a glass of wine on the streets like you, you must have kind of i definitely, I definitely yeah. think in um you know certain parts of europe i definitely think it's you know i think sweden is probably very similar to um canada in many ways yeah. but we have one bottle shop for the entire country it's called system Belagas. um you cannot buy cold wine or beer in that shop because they feel that it's going to help promote drinking of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite interesting that they have a system where every single wine or beer is um, 
it's not laid out alphabetically. It's actually laid out from price. You can actually go the highest price wine is over here and it goes right down the line to the lowest price wine. So obviously everyone goes to the lowest price <laughs> wine. Um, it's quite interesting that, you know, they actually sent me a media release around about a year ago that said, you know, we are the bottle shop that doesn't want to sell you alcohol. <laughs> They're quite <laughs> proud about that. Yes. Um, it's got, they've got really weird, um, they've got really uh, weird um, shop hours as in you can like, like you can't buy wine uh, after seven o'clock on weeknights mm. on Saturday, it closes at three o'clock in the afternoon. And on Sundays it's completely closed altogether. Um, but in saying that they do have very well educated staff. Like if you say, Hey, I'm having time for dinner tonight. What's a good wine. They'll actually say, Oh, well let me tell you about the wines in this country and this specific, like they are mm. so on point. Mm. The other great thing that, you know, from a wine writer who's very lazy, i.e. me, <laughs> once, once a week, um, System Blog holds these special wine writer tastings where you go to their headquarters, head, head office, and in this like white laboratory style room is every single wine that is going to be launched in the country in six weeks' time. They'll give you little notes where you can write your own little tasting notes. Um, and they open the bottles, they chill the wine down for you, they, 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 they give you real wine glasses to taste these wines, and then they do the washing up after you. It's like, it's like living with a perfect partner. <laughs> it's, you just walk in, do your tasting, and then walk out and say, thanks, see you later. Um, the only problem with that is that it is an extremely white, sterile environment, which is always terrible for photographing, especially when you've got um, an Instagram account that relies on really beautiful um, pictures, mm-hmm. and, you know, oh, here's another bottle shot of a white uh, of, of a wine with a white background like I want to kill myself sometimes so, and you always see me trying to do these really um, alternative unique weird I think I'll next time thing I'll do is I'll probably be doing a handstand with a holding a bottle of wine just to get an interesting bottle shot in that white laboratory room but as I said I, I, I'm only joking of course but the fact is it's such a you know it's literally a walking into a, a, a candy land of every single wine that you always wanted to taste, um, and it's just open there for you to taste. So that's pretty good. And for me, it's it's quite unique because coming from Australia, we are so parochial in Australia, where you know ninety percent of the wines sold are Australian wines in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, ask me about anything about us, any wine in Australia, and I'll tell you about that. But coming to Europe, and it's been a, a real very steep learning curve of like all these wines that, you know, you've heard before, but you haven't really tasted enough to really garner a, an opinion or, or, or a, a educate your palate. So that's what I've been doing in the last year and a half that I've been living in Sweden is just like swimming in all of these European wine styles and, you know, falling in love with these wines that a lot of people have already felt falling in love with at the start of their career. I'm only falling in love with right now. So everything from Chablis and Sancerre and Pinot Noir from Burgundy and, you know, German Rieslings and Alsace Pinot Gris, you know, everything from crisp Italian whites and reds that actually um, sing when they're teamed with food, you know, and then you've got the, all these really weird and unique places like, you know, the red wines from Hungary and Romania, you know, who would have thought that, you know, you, the, the amazing wines are coming from these countries. And then uh, something that I'm really getting into lately is English sparkling wine. Like, it is as good as champagne. And it's so cool right now that, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest buzzwords in Europe as far as I'm concerned at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, you're talking about uh, 
you know, being out of Australia and we have a, there's a, I guess a, a resettled Aussie living in our city here who's, who's a wine guy. And it's kind of funny because we talk about when he was growing up, it was all basically fortified wines and that's what he grew up on. And so yeah. we kind of give him a hard time here sometimes when he's, you know, trying different wines, how it might not be, you know, what you, you know, what he was used to growing up on, I guess. Well, it's quite interesting that you say that because, like, the reason why Australia has such amazing an amazing red wine industry now is because of the fortified industry that was established in the 1800s. Like, you know, we have, for example, one of Australia's most famous vineyards is also the oldest Shiraz vineyard in the world. It's the Henschke of Grace Vineyard. Mm-hmm. It's celebrating its 157th birthday. Like, the vines there are 157 years old. And it's still producing Shiraz to this very day. Amazing Shiraz. But, you know, there are wines uh, out there. Actually, no, that's not the oldest Shiraz vine in Australia. There's actually one from 1843, and it's still producing um, wine. I think it's Langmill or something like that from um, from uh, somewhere in South Australia. But, yeah, so this is uh, – all these, all these vines were planted to grow grapes for the fortified wine industry. Mm-hmm. And it's only really been in the last 50 or 60 years that we've really gone from producing fortified wine to having all those grapes going to um, still red wine production, mm-hmm. you know, which is why I, I absolutely believe that, you know, Australian red wines are some of the best in the world. Yeah. And I, compared to, you know, compared to wines of Napa Valley, for example, which are just exorbitantly expensive <laughs> – uh, and I don't believe offer very, offers very good value for money at all. Yeah. And one question might be kind of a bit of a stretch, but do you find some of these, you know, you talk about a winery that's been around for 150 years. It's cool when we talk with some winery owners here and talk about uh, the issue of climate change and how even though they might not have been around for that long, they're still need, needing to adapt because, you know, the climate is changing. Do you Is that a challenge for a lot of the Australian wineries as well is that does that have a big impact over there uh it's too early to tell Mm -hmm. i know that um for example let's talk about tasmania tasmania and i was actually speaking to um i was actually speaking to some swedish winemakers like who would have thought they're actually growing and making wine in sweden but they are it's i think in comparison to canada it's probably the it's equal to or maybe a little bit further north of where Canada is growing its grapes for its wine regions. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I, I think they, they will improve just as Tasmania will improve. You know, was, uh, Tasmania's really only really come of its own in the last 20 years. And it was back in the days, like 20 years ago, Tasmania was only three out of 10 vintages. Every three, out of, three years out of every 10 years was, was actually a good vintage. And it was just because... Was it too cold to produce um, grapes down there? No, not necessarily. They just weren't growing them correctly. Mm-hmm. So it all comes down to better viticultural, better better ways to grow the grapes. And you only get that with um, shared experiences and learnings. Um, and winemakers, uh, you know, trying, failing, learning from their mistakes and doing it better the next time. So um, I think that, Wine regions will just grow and adapt, and they will have to. And you know, obviously, uh, with better viticultural practices, they can handle the in, the, the the changing climate change. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's also probably a reason why you know 
they say that English sparkling wine will probably be the next big thing and maybe is champagne preparing for its uh, to lose its crown as it gets too warm in champagne. Who knows? I know that um, Tatanger is actually now investing heavily in English wine country and have now just planted its own um, vineyards literally only a month ago. So time will tell what they're going to be doing there. But, you know, I think that, you know, we've got to do a lot to try and save the world. And um, and we do that through sustainable practices and, you know, better viticultural management, I guess. Mm-hmm. God, listen to me. I sound like I actually know what I'm talking about. That was a bit scary. <laughs> good. That, was not, that sounds really good. Yeah, you sound pretty well rehearsed to this. Yeah. <laughs> um, was there any other topics specifically that you were uh, that you're interested in chatting with us about um, it, that uh, that we haven't touched on yet? No, I actually think that the, what I, I what I would love to get out to everyone is that you know um, the world is an amazing place and drinking wine. Like the thing that I love about wine is that no glass is ever the same, no region is ever the same from year to year. It's the inconsistencies that make wine exciting. But it's also one of those great things that, you know, you could actually, you know, tour the world and go to these amazing places and have delicious food, delicious wine, share it with friends. And if anything, I would just say to people who are listening, don't be boring. Go out there and, you know, expand your horizons and don't always drink the same thing, but, you know, experiment and taste wines you've never tasted before and, you know, um, and just have a lot of fun with it and, you know, find someone who shares your interest in wine and go out there and explore it and, you know, and, 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 and go and visit wine regions locally in Canada or wherever you are in the world listening to this and, you know, speak to the winemaker and, and get inside their head and find out why they're passionate about this wine and taste it and really try and get an, uh, get an understanding. Mm-hmm. And, and, and don't be scared to ask questions yeah. because that's the, that's the number one thing that you will, you will learn. But it, also it's a dangerous, slippery slope. The more that you know about the wine, the more you know about wine and learn about wine, the more expensive it becomes because that $10 bottle of wine won't taste anywhere near as good as that $15 bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a $20 bottle of wine. And then it comes a $30 bottle of wine. And, and, and I apologize if I turn you broke. <laughs> best well, idea for you is to become a wine writer as well so you can get the wine for free <laughs> so that's the plan for everybody just become a wine writer and you'll you'll be fine you won't have to worry about the prices exactly exactly yeah well wrapping up here do you have any uh upcoming trips that you're uh, looking forward to yes next month i am is it what month june actually no in next weekend it's a big thing in um sweden that we have is the, it's called Midsummer Festival, which is basically the Swedish version of New Year's Eve. It's the longest day of the year. It's like 22 hours of sunlight. Okay. And I'm going down to the south of Sweden to, it's not it's not wine, it's actually vodka. So I'm going yeah. to where they produce absolute vodka and we're going to have a three-day festival amongst the the winter, winter wheat, grass wheat or whatever it's called. Um, and they're going to, it's three, three days of, solid drinking vodka and celebrating the pagan rituals of yonder. So that's going to be fun. Not wine, but you know, I think if you like what, I think if you like wine, you'll also like vodka. But next <laughs> month after that, I'm going to, um, next month I'm going to Rioja. Uh, and I think it's actually the first time I've actually been, I, I think I've dri- been through a train 
to Rioja, but it's my first time there, and that's going to be really amazing to um, taste the wines of there and report on back on them, and and also um, uh, flying into San Sebastian. And I know that the coast of Spain is where they have some of the most amazing um, seafood in the world. So I'll be tasting the local wines, um, like albarinos and delicious things like that, and matching it with local seafood. And that's just going to be super delicious. Wow. I'm, I, I'm so jealous. That's, that sounds amazing. <laughs> sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sounds incredible. Um, so for those of you who uh, want to find the Wine Wakers online or on social media, uh, where can they find you guys? Just search for wine wankers. They're, 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 no, I think other people are too embarrassed to have our name, so you'll only find us out there. <laughs> whether whether it's, it's on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or um, on our website, just search for the wine wankers and you will find us and like us and say hi. We, we generally try and say hello to everyone who says hello to us. So, yeah, we, 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 love, we love our people. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing, uh, for doing this interview with us. We, we had a great time talking to you. Yeah. Excellent. All right, gentlemen, you have a great day and we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Take care. Take care.